Thank you, Mark. Yesterday, I heard some uh, hard news. Uh, but to put it in context, I need to go back 30 years. Um, I had two students who got married. Um, he was a basketball player, good, good, uh, good player. He was also one of the most popular guys on campus. Uh, she was a smart-as-a-whip leader among the young women on campus, very beautiful. They graduated. Um, he went to Dallas Seminary, and then they went to the mission field. Fast forward a few years, and uh, the husband turned out to have a pornography addiction that was so severe that uh, it brought them home from the mission field and almost destroyed their marriage. A few years later, their son uh, came out as gay and turned his back on their beliefs. Three days ago, their sweet 28-year-old daughter who suffered from depression and anxiety, who has a, a loving husband and a two-year-old baby girl, one-year-old baby girl, uh, went missing. And yesterday, her body was found. Suicide. You know, we sing songs about um, you're sovereign over us. And um, I got to tell you the truth. I'm not happy all the day right now. I, I know what that song means. I know it's talking about being infused with the joy of salvation. I know, I know that. But the truths of these things that we sing are to penetrate our souls and they help us cope in times like this. But my goodness, how much can one family take this utter, absolute devastation? If you took a snapshot of that couple 30 years ago, uh, all the hope and energy of youth, all the commitment, and then put it side by side with a snapshot taken today, you would see the devastation of a fallen world, of sin, of absolute ruin and pain and grief. Well, Gary, why are you beginning your sermon with such a cheerful story? Am I saying that they weren't truly followers of Jesus? Absolutely not. Am I, am I saying that following Jesus exempts you from a life of pain? Absolutely not. Following Jesus consistently and faithfully will keep you from sin to the extent to which you are consistently and faithfully following him, right? That's, that's a no-brainer. I mean, every time a believer sins, he or she is making a choice to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And at that split instant of that sin, you are saying at that point, either God's word isn't true or God's word doesn't apply or I'm just not going to think about it. It's more what I do. So there is that, but following Jesus does not exempt me from my own sinful nature. You know, Romans 7 describes that struggle. Things I don't want to do, I do. Things I do want to do, I don't do. Oh, Lord, I need your spirit to help me through this, which is what Romans 8 is about. So 
following Jesus doesn't exempt me from my own sinful nature. It doesn't exempt me from the consequences of the choices that other people whom I love make. And it, and it doesn't exempt me from the consequences of life in this fallen world where there are things like cancer and hurricanes and sudden squalls and storms that overturn a boat and destroy a family. So, I mean, read the book of Job. The desperate need that we have, that we were singing about, the desperate need for ourselves and for our world is the need for hope, for redemption, for rescue, for salvation. The gospel doesn't mean life is going to be free from pain and suffering. The gospel means there is hope. And that when we blow it, there's forgiveness. And that one day there'll be a new heaven and a new earth where there'll be no more pain, no more tears. The one who's going to wipe away our tears is the one who has hands with holes in them. When people, and, and, and by the way, for every story of a tragedy, like the tragedy I just shared, there are other stories that just are just great. I know that. Betsy and I were talking about this this morning. You know, when, when we were in our 30s, late 30s, if we'd taken a snapshot of our family, then I would have said, we've never suffered. In fact, I, I taught a group of uh, military for a week, the book of Job, and I had to preempt it by saying, I'm sorry, I have never suffered. But here's what God's word says. And then years later, I could say, okay, we suffered. And you know what? What God's word said from Job was absolutely the same. <laughs> it was absolutely true. So when people say, when people look at what Jesus has done and say no to that rescue, that redemption, it is devastating. When your loved ones say no to Jesus, and they're your loved ones, it's all the more devastating. Here's where I'm going with all of this. The Jews were Jesus' loved ones. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. That city was filled with Jews who chose, who chose to reject him. He came to his own, and his own received him not. Can you imagine someone you love racked with spasms of a terminal disease? You hold their cure in your hand with this vial of medicine and they reject it. They say, no, I don't believe in it. I won't receive it. When all they had to do was look up, respond in faith like the Jews in the wilderness, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. The reason why I go into all this is because Romans 9 through 7, in these chapters, we're studying more than a history lesson, okay? Look with me again at chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and un ceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren my kinsmen according to the flesh Jewish rejection of the gospel is just emotionally devastating to the apostle Paul and it should affect us deeply as well we're not to feel distanced 
from that passion. My question is, does my heart beat with the heart of God for the lost Jew or Gentile? Does my heart beat with the heart of God? So far in, Ro in Romans, Paul has indicted pagan Gentiles as being without excuse for rejecting God's revelation in nature. And then he indicted religious people also for being without excuse because they can't save themselves through their good works. And finally, he indicted the most religious of all, the Jewish people, as being without excuse for not recognizing Jesus as our Savior. And, and, and today, our passage in Romans 10 is the last without excuse. It's the, it's the last part of that. Last Sunday, in chapter 10, Lewis took us through the study of verses 14 and 15, and he said that temptation, even for, even for Bible-believing churches, in this relativistic age, the temptation is not to want to appear rude by claiming to have the truth. We want to be nice. We want to be perceived as being gracious people. We don't want it, and that gives us the temptation to diminish being so vocal about the offense of the gospel, about sin, about judgment. And he looked at the simple chain of logical steps in verses 14 and 15. Look with me there, Romans 10, 14 and 15. How will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How they will, will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? And he, and he taught us through that chain. Now, that chain may actually remind you of another chain uh, back in chapter, uh, chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. These whom he predestined, he called. These whom he called, he justified. These whom he justified, he glorified. So it's the same kind of thing, isn't it? There's a chain there, but there's a difference between those two chains. Nothing is lost in chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. There are no gaps, there are no lapses, there are no weak links because it all depends upon God. But in this chain, in Romans 10, 14, and 15, the responsibility is ours. And in this chain, send, preach, hear, believe, be saved. Every link is a weak link. Why? Because God has ordained that we're the messengers. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, just listen. For since in the wisdom of God, of, the, of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks seek for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called. Remember chapter 8, those who are called. Those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. God has brought us as weak links into this glorious work of proclaim, being proclaimers of the gospel and being senders of those who proclaim the gospel. But in this chain, failure can happen at any point, at sending, at preaching the gospel with clarity, at hearing the truth, at believing. Now, he has already talked about sending and preaching. In the last verses that we're going to be studying today in chapter 10, we're going to be looking at how Israel felt short of God's plan. That's the hearing and the believing part. 
And to get the context, I want to back up a little bit more. I want you to I want you to see the big picture of this. Just back up a little bit to verse 12. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So being saved is the starting point. How are you saved? Call on the name of the Lord. And now starts this chain of logical retroduction in, in verses 14 and 15 in reverse order from the text. We're sent, we share the gospel, people hear God's word, they believe the truth, and then they call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Okay. But now, the spotlight turns to the case of the persistence of Jewish unbelief. In verses 16 and 17, he makes a very important observation. They don't believe. Why do they not believe? Look at verse 16. However, they did not all heed the good news, which is, yeah, that's an understatement, isn't it? Obviously, they did not all heed. What did they not all heed? The good news. And, and this is the same Greek word for gospel. They didn't heed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That is the word of which Christ is both the subject and the object. The good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel. Now the quotation in verse 16, Lord, who has believed our report? That quotation is from Isaiah 53, verse 1. Texts from the Old Testament, when they're quoted in the New Testament, usually bring their context with them. And this is one of those cases. So I want you to turn with me, hold your place here, and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. I'm going to start in verse in chapter 52, Isaiah 52. You can almost say, turn with me to the gospel of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52. And you'll notice in verse 9, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his mighty arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Now, skip down to verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He'll be high and lifted up, greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. The idea of atonement for believers. And who has their sins atoned for? Many nations, not just Israel, many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them, they will see. What they had not heard, they will understand. And he's talking about unbelieving kings who have no information about this. And all of a sudden, they get it. They see the truth of God's eternal plan. All of a sudden, all of the pieces shift and lock into place. Look at this. This is amazing, amazing truth. But you know what? Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's the quotation in Romans chapter 10. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm up in chapter 52, verse 10, that has to do with the salvation of God. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. There's no stately form or majesty that he should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. Jesus did not walk around like uh, like he, you, you might see him in some of the medieval art with a halo around his head with a Shekinah following him. He was despised and forsaken of men, 
a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. God is doing this to him. We're not doing this to him. He's getting what he deserves. This is his judgment. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. By his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray corporately. Each of us, individually, has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. Um, His grave was with wicked men. He was with a rich man in his death. And on and on and on and on. This is a clear picture of the suffering of God's Messiah. And the Israel, uh, the Jews had this text. Who has believed our report? Well, the Jews apparently haven't. They've chosen not to believe what is clearly an Old Testament picture of the Messiah, which if you take the New Testament picture of Jesus and superimpose it over that Old Testament picture of the Messiah, it is perfectly coherent. It fits Perfectly, it's an absolute match. The overlay is identical. So Isaiah 53, 1 is really a New Testament question. Given the evidence of Old Testament scripture and New Testament fulfillment in Jesus, why do they not believe? Well, there are two excuses that might come to mind if you want to give them a best case interpretation. Number one, they haven't heard. Maybe. Or number two, having heard, they didn't know what it was that they heard. They didn't understand. Maybe. Both of those excuses are excuses I have heard from my children. Now, kids, not not getting on you here. I hear them now from my grandchildren. You know, I didn't hear you. Or... I didn't know that you meant that. Or I didn't know that you meant that. Or if I ignore you, you didn't really say it. By the way, do we ever respond to God that way? I didn't hear you. Or... I didn't know that you meant that, or I didn't know that you meant that, or if I ignore you, you didn't really say it, and I'm not accountable for it. Do we ever do that with God? <laughs> well, Paul responds to both the, to both the excuses they haven't heard, they didn't understand. From Scripture, the point is that God has always told the Jews what he was going to do. He never didn't tell them what was going on. And does it, I mean, does it strike you as strange that in Matthew 2, when the Magi came from the east and asked the question, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Their immediate reply by these Jewish scholars was in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what was written by the prophet. 
Okay, so let's look at the excuses in verse 18. Here's the, the first best case excuse. But I say, surely they have not never heard, have they? Well, the answer is yes, <laughs> they, they have, actually. Indeed, they have. And then he quotes from Psalm 19. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. I want to point out two things from this verse. First, the quotation from Psalm 19 uh, is puzzling. And then secondly, is it true that all the Jews had heard about Jesus? Let's look at both of those questions very briefly. First of all, the quotation from Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is all about God's revelation to us. The first half is about what is called general revelation. Verses 1 through 6 about God's revelation in nature and creation, things that anybody, everybody can see. The first six verses, verses 7 to 11, are all about God's word, his special revelation given specifically to those who were repositories of the word. As Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, the Jews received the oracles of God. So, uh, what he's saying in Psalm 19 is God has revealed himself to all people who he is in, in creation and to specifically more, more uh, clear and, and precise revelation through his word that uh, it was given to the Jews. That's Psalm 19. That's what that was about. Now, <clears throat> what, what, to, to, um, the point that Paul is making here that the Jews were not ignorant. Uh, the point would be better made if Paul had quoted from verses 7 through 11, that part of Psalm 19, because that's where Scripture is the topic. That's not the verse that he quotes. It's puzzling. Instead, speaking about the Jews, he quotes from the first six verses. He quotes specifically from Psalm 19, verse 4. Why does he quote from verse 4? Well, because he is making a clear point. The revelation of God was intended to be universal, to be shared with everyone. And in verse 4, you have these universal terms. All the earth ends of the world. There's no other verse in the whole psalm more descriptive of God's revelation to everyone. And his point is that the gospel is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles, it's for everyone. It always was. The law was not Israel's possession, the law was Israel's stewardship. And both parts of God's revelation in the world and in the word reveal to us what God is like. Israel fell short of the mission. And if that's his point, then Psalm 19, verse 4, makes his point. Second, is his claim that all the Jews have heard historically true? Or is this exaggeration for effect? Maybe. I mean, we just had an understatement in the preceding verse. You know, not all have, have heeded, right? That's an understatement. So do we now have an overstatement to balance that out? But the truth is, a good case can be made that almost all, if not all, Jews had heard the essentials of the claims of Jesus of Nazareth to be the Christ. I mean, think about this. Just 
going to hit a few bullet points. When Jesus was born, all Jerusalem knew about Herod's anger and the visit of the Magi. John the Baptist proclaimed that he was the forerunner of the coming Messiah. And then when Jesus came, John pointed to Jesus and said, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus began his ministry by quoting from Isaiah 61 regarding the coming Messiah and said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm here. I'm the one. I've arrived. Word about Jesus' teaching and Jesus' miracles spread like wildfire throughout the provinces of, of Samaria, Perea, Judea, and Galilee. Jesus sent the 12 out to Israel, Luke 9 says, to all the villages and cities. Later, Jesus sent out the 70, Luke 10 says, to every village of all Israel. Jesus presented himself in the temple for the three festive holidays every year of his ministry when Jews would gather from all over the world. During the final Passover, Jesus presented himself at the triumphal entry in Jerusalem, riding on the donkey as the prophesied Messiah. So did they hear? Yes. Yes, they did. And then after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and then ascension, Listen to what we read in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. If I can get there, I'm going to read it to you because it's really good. <laughs> in Acts chapter 2, I'm going to start with verse 7. These were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the district of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues. You got that? Everybody. And then later on, when Paul arrives in Rome, even in Rome, in uh, Acts chapter 28, he meets with the Jewish leaders. He called those together who were the leading men of the Jews. And then he met with them. And, and they, they, they told him, we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. Some were persuaded by the things spoken, but others, doesn't say did not believe, says would not believe. Now, and remember when Paul wrote Romans, he was on his way to Spain. So the claim in Romans ten eighteen, I think stands justified. Everyone, every Jew had heard enough about Jesus to either know or to want to know more. Israel has heard and they're accountable for what they've heard and rejected. So Paul moves on to a next, a second best case excuse, excuse uh, in verses 19 through 21. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? And what he means by that is that they did not understand. The answer is yes, they did. And his answer is entirely from Scripture because Scripture makes the point, and this is what they should have known. For Verse 19 continues, For Moses says, 
I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding will I anger you. In verse 20, and Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So lots of scripture here. Verse 19, Moses says, and he quotes Deuteronomy. Verse 20, Isaiah says, and he quotes Isaiah. That's the law and the prophets. That's what Paul had just talked about with the Jewish leaders. You've heard the phrase, the law and the prophets. Well, here it is again with Deuteronomy and Isaiah. And Paul is making his point. Verse 19 quotes Deuteronomy 32, which was a song of Moses sung by all the people. So Israel sang this song that promised a time when Israel will, and if you'll permit me an analogy, but this is exactly what he's saying. Israel will be like a child who sees no value in a toy until another child picks it up and starts playing with it. Being provoked to spiritual jealousy is not pretty. It's a sign of immaturity, but it's what happened. In verses 20 and 21, the statement from Isaiah 65 makes it clear as clear as it possibly can be. In verse 20, there's going to come a day when Gentiles are going to respond to the Messiah. In verse 21, at that time, Israel will be resistant to her Messiah. And you'll notice the reference in, verse, in Isaiah to the idea of stretching out your hands. Stretching out your hands. I, I, all day long, I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This is a plea, an invitation. Come to me. And what, what's ironic here is God is the one who's stretching out his hands like the father of the prodigal son. It should be Israel stretching out her hands for God. So at least in some sense, the Gentiles are in and Israel is out by her own choice. But it's not like there are two sets of enemies, Jews and Gentiles, suddenly accidentally stuck together in the same lifeboat. It's more like this. Everyone is invited into the lifeboat in order to receive life, be rescued. You can choose not to get into the boat because you don't like who else is being rescued. You can choose that. You'd rather not be in their company. But that means that you are choosing death rather than rescue or salvation. Do you remember the parable of the guests and Jesus uh, story in Luke 14, where the, the people who were invited kept making excuses, excuses, excuses. It's what we've seen here, excuses. And finally, the host says, I want you to send out, go to the streets and lanes, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, go into the highways, the hedges, compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. Those who were invited made excuses. Others who, there were others there, though, who were brought in, who enjoyed the banquet, who didn't even know there was a banquet. They didn't even know. The Gentiles were clueless that God had been at work all these centuries preparing salvation for them as well as for Israel. So that by the time Paul wrote Romans 10, Gentiles had come into the church in large numbers. And he was writing to Rome, a mostly Gentile congregation. In the Gospels, Jesus Dealt, had dealings with a handful of Gentiles, but you know, it was a handful and it was Jesus. So we can dismiss that, right? Mm, that was Jesus. But soon, 
in Acts, the Gentile Christians outnumbered the Jewish Christians. And God used the unbelief of Israel to bring about the salvation of the Gentiles. This is a theme throughout the Old Testament. It's a theme, really, throughout the book of Acts. So, okay. All excuses evaporate. Israel did hear. Israel did know. And Israel did not believe as a whole. As one scholar said, the Jews tried to earn their righteousness by keeping God's law. They failed because they underestimated God's standard of righteousness and because they overestimated their own goodness. This is a great chapter, great passage. It's clear from these verses, Paul mostly asks questions and he simply answers them with Scripture. I mean, do you notice that? He didn't have much argumentation in between here. Here's a question. Here's scripture. Here's a question. Here's scripture. And it's clear that the Bible has answers to the great questions of life. But there is some real historical urgency to the plea behind these verses. I want to read to you um, from Luke chapter 21. Just listen to uh, these words. Luke chapter 21 describes the judgment that is to come upon Israel. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by enemies, then recognize that her desolation is near. And those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are in the midst of the city must leave. Those who are in the country must not enter the city because these are days of vengeance so that all things which are written must be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This judgment began less than four decades after Jesus said this, when Jerusalem was destroyed. Israel entered a period of Gentile domination and rule over Jerusalem. Israel is now a nation again, and the final fulfillment will take place just prior to Jesus' return, if you read the rest of the context. Think about that. Hostile peoples surrounding Israel. Do you think that would happen historically? Is there urgency in sharing the gospel with all people? Absolutely. Is there urgency in sharing God with the Jews? Absolutely. As Paul said in chapter 1, verse 16, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. In fact, next Wednesday night, this coming Wednesday night, and Sunday morning, a week from today, we have someone that we really need to listen to. Avi Snyder is going to be with us. Lewis mentioned Avi. It's mentioned in your bulletin. Uh, he, he did a great job with us when he was here before. He is the uh, European director and the USSR director for uh, Jews for Jesus. And uh, he, is, he is in the country right now. And, uh, I mean, the very next verse in Romans, chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? He may talk about that. So I want you to come and hear, Avi, 
uh, he he is a, a great brother. And, he, and I told him where we're going to be in Romans. And I told him, buddy, I'm, I'm setting up the, the tea. You can <laughs> you can go for it if he, if he wants to do that. But. Here's what I want us to take home with two thoughts, first of all. I think it's it, it, it's just clear from this passage. We are to pray for the unsaved and to love them well, no matter whether or not they are a disobedient and obstinate people, Jews or Gentiles. What's your attitude towards disobedient and obstinate people? Anger, resentment, annoyance. Okay, I'm going to leave you to yourself. God's attitude is to stretch out his arms. The father of the prodigal. Some of you, and every person can do this, but some of you are praying about the salvation of a loved one, a spouse, husband, wife, a child, a parent, a neighbor, a co-worker. When you wake up in the middle of the night, that's the person you pray for by default. You just go into prayer for that person. That's one way of showing love. Pray for the unsaved and love them well. So that's an action step that you can engage in, that God wants us to engage in. Why? Because we are engaged. We're not to read this dispassionately. Second thing that you can do is to be available as a witness. One person put it this way, God does not want your ability as much as he wants your availability. The Jews knew that they had God's truth, but for whatever reason, they kept it to themselves, and that's part of, part of God's indictment of them. I just don't want it to be any part of God's indictment for us. For us not to share the gospel is for us to be without excuse. Frankly, I'm okay if it's, if when you witness you're terrified, that's okay. I am too sometimes. It's just not okay to let Satan paralyze us with fear into not witnessing. It's funny how episodes that may mean nothing to one person can be life-changing or formative for another person. Years ago, I was traveling with the Walk Through the Bible Ministries. I was teaching full-time at the college. The church had begun, and I was still traveling on weekends for that first year because we didn't know if the church was going to exist, was going to survive. So I'd, I'd come back. I'd fly out Friday night, fly back Saturday night. And I was, uh, it was either that year or the year before I, was, I found myself sitting next to a man um, who turned out, as we talked, was a producer from Warner Brothers. He had a last-minute flight, which is why he was in coach, <laughs> and sat next to me, and he asked me what I did, and I told him, uh, I uh, teach Greek at a Christian college up here. I didn't say anything about being a pastor because I didn't know if I was, really, and uh, that plus, whenever you mention the word pastor, you know what happens. There goes the wall. So, uh, and when I mentioned that, the conversation went on from there. He was totally skeptical about, he was an absolute skeptic about any historical claim at all that could be validated from the scriptures. He, it was really a position of ignorance on his part, frankly. So we talked all over the stratosphere. And, and when, he, when he got off the plane, uh, we got off together, each went to our next connection. Uh, he smiled at me, 
shook my hand, and he said, you're very articulate for a Christian. That comment, I didn't take it the way you just did. That comment shook me to my core because I realized something about myself because that had been my goal. That he would not think I was stupid for being a Christian. And I didn't recognize my own heart. Now, before anybody says, Gary, you're being too hard on yourself. You were 10 years old. You know. and, and Gary, maybe it's pre-evangelism and the Lord can use that because you know some people plant, some people water. God brings a harvest. I know, I know all that. I know all that. I know that. But the reason why I remember that conversation so vividly th over 30 years ago, 33 to 34 years ago, is because my motive was exposed to myself as being that. I was more concerned about how he perceived me than how he perceived the gospel. Now, ever since that day, I've had a gauge that sits on top of my motives for 33 years now that checks my soul when I witness to people. So my question to myself is, do I love them more than I love what they think of me? And do I love Jesus more than I love what they think of me? Do I love what Jesus loves? So, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Lord, I thank you for this meditation and your word for this chapter as we close that chapter out. And, and Lord, I thank you for the opportunities that you give us to witness. I pray that we would recognize them for what they are and that we would speak the truth in love in a winsome way with courage, with boldness, because we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.